Alrighty. And away we go. Hey, Dad. Hi, Rye. How are you? I'm good. How are you? All right. You're looking good. Thanks, Dad. Welcome to the Family Crime Cast, everybody. We got to keep introducing ourselves. We keep forgetting. I'm Mariah Honaker. And I'm Bob Honaker. And we are your hosts of the Family Crime Cast. So, we have a big episode today. I'm yes, pretty, we do. I'm pretty excited about it. Me too. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the prom mom case, which is such a mind-boggling case, in my opinion. If you don't know about this case, you're about to find out a lot about it. And I really hope we do it justice because this is not only a big episode for us, but I think this is probably the biggest case that we've covered so far. Would you say so? I would say this is the biggest case we've covered so far. More to come, but this is certainly one of the most unbelievable cases that I had in my career. Wow. Yeah. And I think as far as publicity goes, I mean, I there's so many articles you have here. I have a People magazine in front of me. I have a New York Times article. There's so much general fascination about this case. It captivated, confused, intrigued people. And I really want to go into all the details of that night and what happened and the discovery of this body. But first, I want to read a segment from an article which I'll be referencing throughout the episode. The article is written by Robert J. Braun, was an article that was published in the Star-Ledger on June 16th, 1997. The article is called, Homicide is Routine for the Prosecutor, But This Death Follows Him Home. And there's a couple reasons why I really like this article. It's probably my favorite one that I've come across about this case. One being that it's written really well. Oh, this guy, Robert Braun, was known as a fantastic journalist, and people wanted to have an article written by him. And and in this case, he happened to ask to come into my office one day and asked to interview me about the prom mom case. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed reading it. And that's one of the reasons. The second reason is because I am mentioned (laughs) several times in the article. And I like to think that I was a part of this investigation because I'm simply like mentioned several times in it. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. (laughs) So I'm going to start by reading the beginning of the article, and then we'll go into the case in more detail. The article starts by saying, This was going to be a busy Saturday for Bob Honaker. Family busy, not work busy. Coaching his son's little league team, getting ready for the nine-year-old's birthday, just having some time with his three kids. Then the call came in. Early in the morning, his wife Kim watched his face darken as he spoke on the phone. What is it? She asked. A baby death, Bob answered. They both knew the plans for the weekend would be scrapped, but that wasn't what troubled them most. These are the cases I take home with me, says the second assistant, Monmouth County Prosecutor. I can't leave them at the office. They follow me. Adults killing each other? I can forget that, but not babies. In the 16 years Bob Honaker has been a prosecutor, he has handled scores of homicides, and about a dozen have involved the deaths of newborns. Babies in dumpsters babies in trash bags, babies left in the woods to die. We see a lot of this, too much. Now Honaker will be the man who decides whether criminal charges will be brought in the case of a baby boy whose body was found in the garbage in the woman's lavatory at a catering place in Aberdeen called the Garden Manor, found during the Lacey Township High School prom. So that brings us into the prom mom. What I want to start with is that early morning phone call you received. So one, who called you that morning? What did they tell you? And what was it like to receive a phone call like that? 
Well, at the time, I was second assistant prosecutor, and I was supervisor of all of the attorneys assigned to the investigative division, which included the homicide division. And I remember I received a call from one of the detectives indicating that um, there was a baby that was delivered at a prom, and they were investigating. Don't know what really they have at this point, but, you know, we're involved, so you better gear up here. This is going to be something that we're going to be looking at for the next God knows how long a period of time. And I spoke to my solicitor, well, gather as much facts as you can. When you gather that information, let me know what that information is. I'll brief the prosecutor and we'll go from there. Now let's talk about Melissa Drexler. She was an 18-year-old senior at Lacey Township High School in New Jersey. She was known as quiet, uh, a diligent student, an aspiring fashion designer, and in all accounts seemed like a pretty shy girl. She had a few close friends she would open up to, to an extent, obviously. And what would you say Melissa was like from the moments you interacted with her and, and what was her family life like? Well, I I think she was a very ordinary young girl. Uh, She was a high school senior. Her family, you know, lived in Forkett River, I believe, and they were, you know, very good people. Mother worked for a bank. Father was a shipping clerk. She was an only child. She had friends in in high school. She had a boyfriend uh, that she was dating for several years. So most people thought that she was somewhat shy, but a, a good kid. And people and her friends liked her and liked being around her. For all indications leading up to the prom, no one knew or ever suspected that she was pregnant. So on the night of the prom, it's June 6th, Melissa arrives at the prom with her then-boyfriend, John Lewis, who's 20 years old. It's typical prom stuff. I mean, they're dressed to the nines, they arrive in a limo with their friends, and it's reported that on the way to the prom, Melissa had been complaining of cramps at some point. And I think even her water may have broke uh, sometime uh, during either the trip or shortly before the trip. Wow. So when they arrive at the venue, she immediately goes to the bathroom with a friend, as girls do. And in the bathroom, Melissa is in the stall, and it seems to be taking quite a while, and her friend starts to get concerned, and, you know, kind of is like, hey, Melissa, what are you doing? I'm sure her friend's also like, we're at the prom, like, get the hell out of the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And Melissa assures her she's fine, she's just having a heavy period, tells her friend to go on without her, tell the boys I I might be a while. Fifteen minutes later, the friend comes back to the bathroom, Melissa's in the mirror fixing her makeup, touching herself up. They head back to the prom where she's seen eating some salad, dancing with her boyfriend, dancing on the dance floor, seemingly having a good time at prom. Shortly after this time, a janitor's called to the bathroom because there's a lot of blood on the bathroom floor. And obviously this is cause for concern when you see it. And the janitor and some chaperones are confused. Uh, I think the chaperones start asking around like, what's you know who was in the bathroom people say oh melissa was in that stall she had been in there for a while they confront her and she says it was just a heavy period you know and so the janitor and i think another staff member at the venue start to clean up 
the blood on the floor. That's when the staff worker goes to throw out the trash. You know, they put all the bloody stuff in there and she goes to take out the trash and she notices it's really heavy, probably more heavy than a bathroom trash should be. So when she throws it out, she says to the janitor, you know, can you you come check this out? It's really heavy. She probably has a bad feeling about it. And the janitor comes out, he checks the bag, and they find a six-pound newborn baby boy in the bag. So this is when everything obviously goes, you know, gets crazy. Let's go into the moments after the baby is discovered in the garbage. So the janitors notify the chaperones at the prom, and they once again go back and confront Melissa as to what happened in the bathroom. Obviously now they know that something more than just having a heavy menstrual period was the cause of all that blood in the bathroom. And at that time, Melissa admits to the school officials that she in fact delivered a child into the toilet and removed the child from the toilet, placed it in a plastic bag, wrapped up the plastic bag, placed it in the trash, and then left and returned to the prom. Simultaneously to them confronting Melissa, Now school officials have also contacted the emergency medical services calling 911 and alerted the police that uh, a infant was found in the trash at the prom. Officials from the school, particularly officials who were trained in CPR and health issues, tried to resuscitate the infant on the scene. As soon as the emergency medical personnel arrived, they took over, and then there was aggressive efforts by the emergency medical personnel to resuscitate the baby. Baby was transported in a hospital to Bayshore Community Hospital in Homedale. Again, Efforts by nurses and doctors at the hospital attempted to resuscitate the infant, but to no avail, and the infant was pronounced dead approximately 10.30 on the evening of June 6th, uh, 1997. Just so sad. So what happened with Melissa at the prom? So... Obviously now, school officials have, who have confronted her realize that she just delivered a full-term baby boy in the bathroom. And nobody knew about it, which we'll get into when we yes, go a nobody, little bit further. Nobody had knew about it. No teacher, anybody. And there was a, now an effort because this young woman had just delivered a full-term baby boy, so there was concern about her and her condition. And uh, the officials arranged for the emergency medical personnel to transport her also to the hospital in order to treat her in regards to the delivery of this newborn. Yeah, that's not just like, you know, some quick thing that you do and go on about your day. That's a traumatic, intense thing that happens to a woman's body. Yeah, and you would think, in, in even back in 1997, the personnel who are involved in the delivery of a, of a newborn, and she did this alone There's like in a eight people in a room trying to get this baby out of you. Right, <laughs> like, but, but she, she did this alone in a stall in a bathroom at a catering hall in Aberdeen. And so, then went back and, and, you know, had a good time, and went back and, yeah, She's and, probably in a lot of pain. But the school officials were concerned about her well-being mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. 
and they transported her to the hospital, and at the hospital she was treated. What do they do for a woman who's given birth outside of the hospital coming to that? Like, what does that examination entail? Well, uh, you know, obviously they check for her well-being. They check to make sure that her vital signs are all in line. But also, you know, there is afterbirth uh, of an infant. So they had to make sure that that had been properly delivered. And that was not delivered until she was at the hospital. AKA the placenta. Yeah, I was going to ask where that placenta went because it was it ha- still it, it was, has to go somewhere. Well, it can't it was stay still, in you. It was still in Melissa Drexler Holy at the time she went to the hospital. Crap. And, and and the doctors and nurses there, you know, performed a procedure which removed the placenta. Holy shit. Okay. So, when does the press pick up on this story? Well, I mean, obviously once the call went out for emergency medical personnel and the police, they immediately knew that this case had something different than the normal cases that come across the police scanner, that a baby born at a prom by a mother who, who, for all accounts, told no one and no one knew. So the press immediately began to be involved in the case. You know, I was, you know, called by the detectives in the early morning hours of now, now Saturday, which was, I think, July 7th, and the press were already on the case. And so we knew from the very outset that this would be no ordinary case that would be covered by the media. So you are in every article, you're in every video, you're in like so many things in this case. And at this point, you're the second assistant prosecutor. Why are you handling the press? Well, you know, I had done press for the prosecutor's office for Prosecutor K. And, you know, Saturday morning uh, now, it's probably mid-morning, go into the prosecutor's office and meet with Prosecutor Kay. And he tells me, listen, um, I want you to handle all of the press on this. And I said, you know, thank you very much, but, uh, you know, you know, you're the prosecutor. You should be handling the press. And he said, well, the only thing is I'm going on vacation. So <laughs> typical, my boss, John Kay, he's felt confident enough for me to handle it, knew that I would keep him informed as to all of the progress of the investigation, and also keep the media informed as to what our responsibilities were during the course of this investigation, because there were a lot of questions Mm -hmm. that were being asked about what we were doing with this case. Totally. Plus, he wanted to go fishing. So, you know, who's going to stand in the way of a man in his fishing pole? he, he, He has a reputation and always had a reputation of being a great fisherman. So... Um, I, I hear think, it's great in Maine. Yes. Just kidding. I know nothing about fishing. <laughs> but uh, uh, so that's how I got to do the the media in the case. And uh, Mariah, it started immediately. So, you know, that Saturday, you know, dealing with the press because we did not have a lot of information yet. And so I was dependent upon the investigators to go out and gather as much information as they could, you know, from witnesses, from medical personnel, etc. So at least I had a sense as to what this case was. And ultimately, if we determined that a crime had been committed, mm-hmm. then we had to start making decisions at some point as to whether or not she should be charged. Right. And I just feel like, because it's still so unknown, like how did this happen and why did it happen? And, you know, there's just so many unknowns to it 
that needed to be found out before a decision was made. Yes, and you you, you had to do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, you could not be quick to judgment. You could not do it in a, a haphazard fashion. No matter what the press says, no matter the pressure from the press. No matter the press what, yeah. definitely just yeah. went for the jugular. Be- because they will pressure you. Yeah. And you will have... Uh, individuals who will try to set their own narrative about the case, mm-hmm. you know, in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. And you would have other people who want to set their own narrative about the case in another direction. But the role of the prosecutor is to find out what the facts are exactly. and, and lead with the facts. Exactly. So let's talk about why this became such a sensational news story. I'm going to read another excerpt from the article and then we'll talk about it because I like what you said. I think it's a little poetic and I'm also mentioned in it. <laughs> Is that why you read it? <laughs> it's become international. I spoke with BBC and a German newspaper. Something about this case touched people all over the world. He offers what seems to be an odd reason for this. You have all the important rites of passage, the prom, a kind of growing up, then birth, then death, all in one night, all in one place. Maybe this is not so odd, because behind Honaker, as he speaks, are a dozen frames with photos of his children and his wife. There's Robert Honaker III, who's 13. There's Zachariah Honaker, 9, and Mariah Honaker, 6. Pictures of them as newborns, pictures of them as birthday parties, pictures when they started school, pictures of all three together, and pictures of each alone. Important moments, rites of passage. So I think... It touched a very human feeling in people all over the world. There was compassion for Melissa Drexler. There was outrage as to what had happened to this infant. And you had all of those factors that a lot of people in this world rejoice or involve themselves in, you know, in, in our country, it's the rite of passage with the prom. You go up, you, you go to the prom, you have a good time, you go out and you party after. Most teenagers in America go through that experience. And it's, in many cases, a very enjoyable experience. But in this case, it was not. Yeah. And you also have another life-changing experience, which is the birth of a child. And then you have another life-changing experiences, which is the death of an individual. When you look at another perspective of you're 18 years old, right? And some people look at that as really beginning your life. You know, you're starting a new journey. This is when you are, quote unquote, an adult and beginning your rite of passage in a way. And then to have a life just barely beginning and, you know, taken away. It's just, it's... It's really poetic when you look at it that way, and it's just—it's really heartbreaking. But you also have to look at it from the perspective of a prosecutor, mm-hmm. that if a crime was committed, then the person responsible for that crime must be held accountable. But at that point, in the early morning hours of Saturday into Sunday, we were not sure as to what direction we were going to go with the case. And that's what involved ourselves in the next almost three weeks. So what was the process of deciding if you're ultimately going to charge her with something? Well, yeah, obviously the press, that was their number one question. Will charges be brought against Melissa Drexler? And I was quite clear with the press early on that 
this decision would not be made until the science was in and the forensics were were completed. And it was not a case where you could make a quick snap decision that this was a homicide. There wasn't a bullet in the head or a stab wound. There were tests that needed to be made that would determine whether or not this baby was viable outside of the mother after birth. And those series of tests had to be conducted in obviously a controlled environment, the medical examiner's office, and done with a degree of scientific accuracy. So we were sure that if we were going to charge her, that we had proof. And so investigators were out there talking to witnesses, gathering information about the timeline of Melissa coming to the prom. Crime scene investigators were photographing the stall. They were removing a, a sanitary napkin disposal because there was evidence that that may have been used to cut the umbilical cord. Wow. They searched the trash bin to see if there was any more items of evidence. They photographed and they gathered videotapes of her coming to the prom. Who did the detectives interview in the case? Well, one of the primary people that they interviewed was Melissa's boyfriend, John Lewis. He had been dating Melissa for about two years. He was from another town, but he got introduced to her and they started dating and hit it off and had a relationship for, you know, a, a good period of time. And he was her prom date that night. Uh, so detectives immediately believe that he must have known something. Right. That he's the boyfriend. Right. Did they, like, plan this? Like... Right. You know, what, what role did he have in this? What mm-hmm. knowledge did he have in this? But from the outset, he was absolutely positively forthright about the fact that he knew nothing, that he did not have any knowledge of the fact that she was pregnant. Now, we didn't believe that at first. Right. I, I still don't understand or believe that. How do you not know that your girlfriend is pregnant? Like, I get there's a show that's like, I didn't know I was pregnant. But, like, they're clearly intimate with one another. You didn't see a little bump there? Like... Well, listen, uh, if you were to say that under most circumstances the boyfriend knew, then other people would know. And we interviewed multiple friends of hers, and her parents did not know. Her friends did not know. Nobody knew. And nobody knew, and she wore clothes that really did not indicate that she was pregnant. I mean, even, like, I see the photo of her walking into the prom, and granted, she's wearing a black dress, and it's, you know, 90s footage so not great but she doesn't look pregnant she did not look pregnant she really didn't so lewis you know sort of corroborated all of the other witnesses who indicated that they did not know and did not have any idea that she was pregnant i still like don't fully understand how that's possible but okay (laughs) but listen i'm telling you right now i've i've had other cases yeah where pregnancies have been concealed Mm -hmm. and people did not know. So it seems unusual. And I think what compounded this particular case was the fact that it was reported that after she delivered the baby, she came back to John Lewis at the prom, sat down next to him, had some salad, and then got up and danced and there has been some reports that she even requested a song from Metallica. So all of that 
All of that led to this kind of unbelievable circumstance of how this could all happen and how it almost could be dismissive of the fact that, you know, the prom and all of that was more important than this baby baby in the trash. That's what it seems like. It seems like the prom to her was so important and, you know, it was this momentous occasion and it's just so... I just can't get over how mind-boggling it is. You know, because she's 18. It's not like she's 14. It's not like she's 15. And no age do you have an excuse for that. But I'm just saying, it's not like... Like, she's about to start her life. She could do this. Like, she could have a baby. Oh, without question. Without question. She Um, seemed like she had supportive friends and family. Like, she could absolutely do it. Without question. She had friends and she had uh, supportive family that if they knew... Maybe there would have been a different result. Right. But that wasn't the case. So, because I feel like all that information that you're gathering is good and well. It's like, you know, clearly she had the baby in the stall, but you need to determine if that baby was alive or not. Quite frankly, all of that evidence was being gathered over this period of time. So we could, number one, give information to the medical examiner as to what we had gathered. But number two, wait until those tests were done and he could definitively tell us the cause of death and the manner of death. Dr. Peacock was the medical examiner yes, on this doc- case. Right. Dr. J. Peacock. Great name, by the way. Like, it, I mean... It's almost like from Clue or something. It's from right? something. Yeah. I don't know, but... Dr. Peacock. Dr. Peacock and I had done multiple homicide investigations together. He was a very, very thorough medical examiner. In my cases that I dealt with him previously, he would not come to a conclusion unless he was absolutely certain. So we felt confident that whatever he decided is what we were going to proceed with. And he conducted a number of tests over a couple of week period of time. Tests involved whether or not there was air in the lungs, whether or not there was air in the intestines, whether or not there were any other congenital defects or abnormalities which would have contributed to the death of the infant. And ultimately, he provided us a report uh, as to his findings. So what did Dr. Peacock find out? Well, Dr. Peacock issued a report which indicated that air in the lungs, and what they do is he does a test where he actually floats the lungs to see whether or not they float. He did that. He found air in the intestines, which was an indicator to him that the baby was viable outside of the birth. There were also what is known as petechial hemorrhages, which indicate that some type of pressure was placed on the infant, which caused the rupture of some blood vessels which means that the baby was alive in order for the baby to bleed. And all of that led him to the conclusion that the baby was viable outside of the mother and therefore that this was a homicide. He actually indicated in his report that there was evidence of potential strangulation and or asphyxiation, which in fact caused this case to be determined to be a homicide. And that report was forwarded to our office. Mm -hmm. So then when you received that report, what did you decide to do? Well, we determined to charge her with murder and endangering the welfare of a child. Crime of murder carried with it at the time 30 years of mandatory jail, potential for life imprisonment, and endangering the welfare of a child was a second-degree offense which carried a penalty of 10 years. All right, so Melissa is being charged with murder. Right, so when she's charged with murder, then we 
contacted her attorney, advised them that we were going to charge her, that she needed to produce herself, and that she would be arraigned on the charge and bail would be set. Got it. So I want to go back to the Robert Braun article and kind of just go to the last segment that he talks about. So it starts with my dad saying, you know, you think you know your kids, he says, turning slightly so he can look at the pictures when he says this. You think you've taught them all they need to know, but I guess you never do know. He is worried about what Mariah thinks of what happened. She knows she's not so far from being a baby herself, and she loves babies. She's always playing the little mother to her baby cousins. Hanukkah remembers what happened when news of the case broke and he was on television answering questions. When he got home, Mariah was all excited about seeing her daddy on television. You talked about a baby, she said. What happened to the baby? The baby died, Mariah. The little girl wasn't as excited anymore. She looked terribly sad. Then she asked, why did the baby die, daddy? I mean, I've always been interested in true crime. (laughs) From when you were even, what, six years old? Trying to figure out the case. What happened to the baby? (laughs) Well, and that's why we're doing the podcast. But uh, that's a very good question, my dear. And I think that's uh, what I think it was for a six-year-old. For a six-year-old, it was a very good question. I I think that's what we'll pick up in the next episode. Yes, we will. We will (laughs) pick it up next, next week with part two of the prom mom series and we hope you guys enjoyed this episode i certainly enjoy talking about it with you dad yeah i enjoy talking about you right and if anybody has any questions let's uh, have them email us yes email us at familycrimecast at gmail.com because we're going to want to answer some questions from you if you have any questions on the case i mean uh, I, I, I hope you do because it's it's really interesting. Right, and, and we've got lo- a lot more interesting aspects of this case yes. which will come out. So part two, we're going to go into Melissa. She's going to come into court. She's going to, you know... Tell us what happened. Tell us what happened. and, and She's going to tell us why the baby died. Thank you so much for tuning into the Family Crime Cast. You can find us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Send us an email at familycrimecast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. Family Crime Cast is our handle. And thanks for tuning in. I love you, Ryan. I love you too, Dad.